You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Let me tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Superiority of Christ. The Superiority of Christ. I know it's a little hard to say. Now, before we get started this evening, I wanted to take the time to address a very hot topic that I've come across on, on online and on social media as of late. This is a highly debated topic, and I know it has been floating around for quite some time, and I know that there is this hot topic debate that I want to get to and I want to address as a church before we get into our sermon tonight, and I know that it's, it's probably going to trigger a lot of you here, and, and, and if there's any topic that could divide a church, I'm afraid that this might be one of those topics. And so the topic that I'm talking about, of course, is who is the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Calm down, calm down. Everyone, relax. You know, we don't want to divide the church here. So I, w- I want to settle this debate once and for all, okay? If you think, and, if, and even if, you, if you're not a basketball fan, you know, just pick a name, all right? Uh, pick the name that you like. Uh, for if, if you think that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, can you just put up your hand? Thank you, thank you, I see that hand. Uh, if you think LeBron James is the greatest of all time. Can you put up your hand, please? Oh. Oh, I saw one hand go back down. Wow. Okay, there you go. I guess we have it. Uh, Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. Can we, we settle it here at Plus Life? Praise God. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Someone said Jesus. Well, we're going to get to that. Thank you so much, whoever the Christian was here in this room. Uh, as we come to the closing portion of John chapter 3, we finally get to the, the, the main point, that the underlying point that the apostle is trying to get across, trying to communicate in this entire chapter 3 of John's gospel. And of course, that question is, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Remember what the first half of this chapter in, consisted of, a conversation with this great Jewish, Jewish teacher, this Pharisee, Nicodemus. We read later in John chapter 7 that Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the religious government of, of Jesus' day. The second half of this chapter, as we read last week, is about John the Baptist, considered by many as the last prophet of the Old Testament. He was the herald of the Messiah, someone who, who God truly used to prepare the way for the Christ. This is the guy that Jesus himself says in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than, the, than John the Baptist. So you have these two great religious leaders juxtaposed with each other in this chapter. Nicodemus, who represented the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Law, and John the Baptist, who represents the transition into the New Testament in Christ, or the New Covenant in Christ. The first having a high position in Jewish religious society and famous among Jewish aristocracy, and the latter, John the Baptist, lived in the wilderness, ate locusts, wore camel's hair as clothing, and was and attracted many of the common people of Israel to follow him. But despite their differences, the stark differences between these two religious leaders in this Jewish society, the same conclusion is said about the both of them. Christ is superior. 
Notice the similarities in both their sections, in both of their, their, their halves of this chapter. Go, to, go back to John chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus says to Nicodemus um, in verse 11, Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now after that, check out the scene with John the Baptist. John the Apostle repeats the same sort of language, the same wording in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. The underlining point that the Apostle John is making is that all earthly teachers and prophets and ministers, whether from the apostate religion of, of Nicodemus and the Jewish faith, or, or even a faithful minister of God like John the Baptist, and anyone else in between, may it be Muhammad or Buddha or, or the gurus of Sikhism or, or Joseph Smith or the Pope or, or priests and pastors, regardless of whoever they may be, whenever they may have lived, whatever title they may have possessed, all of them pale in comparison to the only Son of God who has descended to the earth and proclaimed the truth of God, Jesus Christ. Christ is superior. That's the point of this chapter. This is John's point. And remember his thesis, his thesis once again, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That title of Son of God is, just, is not just to identify who Christ was, but it also identifies his position in the universe and the honor and the reverence that he alone deserves. And John desires that his readers are convinced and believe the same. John wants us to see Christ as superior to everyone and anyone else who's ever lived. And in this closing section of chapter 3, the apostle lists out the very, the, the very reasons as to why Christ and his message to, to the world is superior to any other testimony, to any other message, to any other gospel or truth out there. And that's what we'll be unpacking this evening, the superiority of Christ. Because church, do you realize the difference it would make if we lived our lives with this lens, with this mindset, this understanding of a Christ as our viewpoint, that, that, that there is no one greater, that there is no one greater or superior than Christ. Greater than any uh, teacher or teachings or philosophies or ideologies of the world. Superior to any, any professor or politician or, or celebrity or influencer that we could follow. And if we live our lives with that understanding, with the superiority of Christ as a lens in which we see the world, oh, the difference it would make in our lives. When governments oppress and burden the people with evil laws and actively work against the church, the difference it would make to know that they will need to answer to the Lord of lords and the King of kings, Jesus Christ. When, when society puts forth another lie masquerading as truth and science under the banner of compassion, the difference it would make to know that Christ and, him, and his word is our standard of truth and better still. When crisis and sickness and fear and death and everything else plague our lives as a result of living in a fallen world, the difference it would make to know that our 
hope is anchored in the one who has overcome death, hell, and the grave. Listen listen to what Jesus says, right? In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That glorious truth only makes a difference if we truly accept that Jesus is greater, is higher, is superior than all that we might experience in this life. This was the motivation of the disciples of the early church, why they proclaimed the gospel so publicly, even even though they were faced with the threat of death or imprisonment or persecution of ridicule. They saw their master risen from the dead. Christ proved his superiority over death itself. What could stop them? What is death to to a father of the one who overcomes death? Who is greater than the grave? Paul Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The sentiment here isn't that no one will ever oppose us, but rather, so what if they do? If we have the highest authority, the greatest truth, the only substantial hope behind us, so what if the world persecutes us? So what if the world is falling around, falling apart around us? So what if our bodies fail us? Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Church, this is the hope, the confidence, the assurance that I want to impart to us this evening. For us to receive that because Christ is superior, the world and all its troubles are inferior. So what does our passage say about the superiority of Christ? Let's jump into our passage. Everyone say jump. Last week, we covered the first part of our passage. John's disciples are jealous that Jesus is attaining more followers. More people are going to him to be baptized. So they complain to John. Instead of retaliating or trying to do something about it, John the Baptist instead demonstrates a genuine heart of humility. We talked about that last week. Let's pick up from verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John, of course, is referring to his followers and his influence. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Then John recognizes his place in the grand scheme of God's kingdom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, I'm not the Christ. I've already told you this. I'm just the herald. I'm the one who's in the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the, the, the best man, the best friend. Interesting to note in, the, in ancient Jewish times, uh, in the, their wedding ceremonies, when a couple was betrothed or engaged to one another, the bridegroom would go away and prepare a place for the bride, a, a house. Uh, to, uh, he would build a home for her. Traditionally, he wouldn't see her until all the preparations have been made and, and the wedding day actually comes. There was no wedding coordinator in those days, so the person who had to coordinate it was actually the best man, the best friend of the bridegroom. It was his job to make sure that the rest of the wedding ceremony goes without uh, issues and problems. And if ever the, the bride needed to communicate something to the bridegroom or the bridegroom needed to communicate something to the bride... It was the best man's job to go and deliver the word, to deliver, uh, mediate the message. 
So with this illustration in mind, John the Baptist is telling his disciples, it's not about me. It's not my wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm just doing my part to mediate between him and his bride to ensure that the wedding goes off without issues. And when the wedding's a success, I'll be filled with joy. I'll be happy for them. This joy of mine will be complete, as he says. It's from this sentiment of joy that John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The passage that follows this is a summary, a summary commentary by the Apostle John and everything that's been said in this, in this entire chapter, all the events that takes place. And as mentioned last week, John is specifically including or recalling the story about John the Baptist and his disciples because at his time, there was a common heresy, a a Gnostic heresy called Mandaeism or Sabianism that revered John the Baptist to be uh, equal or higher than Jesus Christ. So the Apostle John is addressing this issue. The Apostle John says in verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. John begins his commentary by recalling once again the origin of Christ. Christ is from above, anathen in the original Greek, meaning from heaven, or more literally, the source from, the, from where the beginning or the origin came from. Jesus is from above. Now having come from above, anothen, Jesus, or John's reasoning concludes that Jesus is therefore above all. He uses another word here, epano in the Greek, meaning on top of, or more than, or literally superior. Jesus is from above, anothen, which is heaven. Therefore, he is above, epano, superior to all. John's first reason as to why Christ is superior, superior points to his heavenly origin. Now, John's already talked about his origin, if you remember, from the very beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The first reason why Christ is superior, according to John, is because Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. Unlike Nicodemus or John the Baptist or Muhammad or Buddha, Jesus not only found his origins from heaven, the source, he was the source. He was the word that spoke the universe into existence. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made was that was made. Paul says, Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul even adds, all things were created through him and for him, for his glory. That's what the title of firstborn in this passage means. The term of firstborn in ancient times was not was not merely a, a, a title of a, of a sequence of order, as in, you're the firstborn in this family. No, it was more so a title or a position uh, that gave responsibility and authority and honor and privilege. You didn't have to be the firstborn in the family just to be called the firstborn. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Jacob, if you remember his story, received the blessing over Esau. Judah received the blessing of kings over Reuben. 
So when Paul refers to Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, he's simply stating that of all the people who has ever lived in this entire universe, Christ is first in line to receive all honor, all glory, all praise, and all authority. That's why all things were created for his glory. Paul adds adds to this. He says in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sunistao in the Greek meaning to stand together, united. It's where we get the word sustained from. Literally, Christ created everything and ensures that everything stands and holds together. He sustains everything. All the orbits of the planets, the timing of the seasons, the attraction between every molecule and atom in your body is held together by the will and power of Jesus Christ. No other person has, who has ever lived can claim this. John's argument is very simple. Again, verse 31 of our passage. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. Buddha was an Indian prince born in a palace. Muhammad was born in Mecca in the Middle East. Joseph Smith was born in Vermont. All these religious leaders were born somewhere in the world. Jesus Though in the incarnation was born in Bethlehem, Jesus, the Son of God, predates time. He has no origin. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Who else can claim this? Who else can claim this? You know, I was talking about the internet earlier, and if you look hard enough, there's a lot of people who do not like Jesus and his story. If you look hard enough, there's a there's this story or this rumor that floats around on, on the internet that says that, well, well, Jesus was just inspired by the story of Horus, the Egyptian god. And interestingly enough, people say that Horus supposedly also was born of a virgin, and his birth was announced by an, an, by an angel, and he was baptized at the age of 30, and Horus had 12 disciples, and he performed miracles, and he had a sermon on the mount, and he, was, he, he, he died, and he rose again, and all this stuff. And people will definitely argue that this is, just, this is where the story of Jesus came from. Well, if you believe that, I would say Reddit and Wikipedia are not considered scholarly works for citation, because none of that is true. Egyptian history has been greatly recorded and preserved, and there is no historical or archaeological evidence that Horus did any of those things. No records whatsoever. In fact, these claims are outright fabricated to deface the gospel of Jesus Christ, an attempt to diminish the glory and uniqueness and superiority of the Son of God. Even Richard Dawkins, if you know him, the world's probably the world's greatest atheist, you call them great. On his website, he says, to write anything about these claims in a scientific manner, I really need something more than repeated claims. When I tried to search for real evidence, I didn't get far. The reality is no one else in all of history can compare to our Savior, the God-man who was and is and is to come, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, church, I know you've heard these truths before, but how does it shape your outlook in this life? When, you're, when you face trials and hardships and sickness and the world feels like it's falling apart, does it reassure you to know that the one who is for you is the one who holds everything together in the palm of his hands? 
When, you, when your life feels empty and hopeless and you see no end to your sentiments of dread and insecurities and depression and fear, what does it mean to you that the word that spoke the universe in existence also speaks love over your life? This is what the preeminence of Christ entails. His divinity secures our earthly reality. Meaning because Christ is superior, everything else is inferior. That is John's point. He who comes from above is above all, above everyone and everything. He is of the earth, belongs to the earth. But John goes on to add, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. What John is getting at is is that these teachers, whether it be Nicodemus or John the Baptist, have earthly origins. They speak with earthly understanding. They are grasping at heavenly truths from an earthly vantage point. Therefore, he who comes from heaven is above all. The natural conclusion is the one who descends from heaven, who has experienced heaven, namely Christ, who has firsthand experience to the, these heavenly truths, is therefore superior than these earthly teachers. And this is what John says in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John is saying, if you believe the words of Christ, then you believe God himself, because Jesus is simply repeating or speaking the words of God. And he speaks them totally empowered and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. No one else can claim this. No earthly speaker or preacher or teacher can ever fully claim without a doubt that every word that they speak or utter is, is completely from God, 100%. And I know this personally as a preacher. It doesn't matter how much time I spend in the Word. It doesn't matter how much, uh, how much I am in step with the Spirit. Whenever I come up here to preach, I can only hope that, I, that what I say is truly from God, guided by God. For you to hear. Because I know that my flesh, my, my fears, and my insecurities get in the way of that. That's why I, I use a script in my sermon. Because I know at the moment that I go off script, I, I start saying something stupid, right? Like connecting biblical truths with Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Like, it's only the reason, it's also the reason why, if you notice, when, whenever we read the Bible here at church before we read it, we say, thus saith the Lord. And we end that time by saying, this is the word of the Lord. Because we believe that of all the portions of our service, of all the, the sections of our service, reading God's word is the only time where we can truly say, without a doubt, 100%, that this is God's word. This is what God is saying to us. Because this is God's inspired word, not just inspired, but it is his revealed word. It is the pinnacle of truth in our service, more than even the sermon itself. So back to what John is saying, that because uh, Jesus is from heaven, he has first-hand account of, of earth or heavenly truth, rather, and he's fully empowered by the Spirit without measure, meaning infinitely so, to communicate, to, in order to communicate these truths. Remember, one of the names of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to guide us to the truth. And so Jesus is infinitely filled without measure with the Spirit of truth. This is the reason why Jesus is superior, because Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is our standard of truth, the Word of God. It's not human teaching or man's philosophies, 
Again, as John stated, man only speaks from an earthly vantage point. We are merely grasping at heavenly truths and heavenly realities with a fallen mind from a fallen world. Meanwhile, the words of Christ and the words given to his apostles later on is to write down, recall, directly come from God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, right, famous passage, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word for truth there in the Greek, aletheia, meaning the facts that compose reality. Jesus is the absolute truth that governs every principle and every law and every substance of this universe. Any truth that diverges from his truth is a lie. The opposite of truth in, in the, to the Greeks was an illusion, something that which represents or something that presents itself to be real or true, but is in fact false. A temporary delusion that will waste away in the light of what is actually true. This is who Christ is in the midst of all the narratives and all the lies and all the deception that is running around in the world. He is unchanging, unwavering, true today as he was before time and even after time. And this is who Christ ought to be to us who follow him, to us who identify as Christians. Jesus is our standard, our baseline to what is true. He is also our anchor in the sea of lies that we are constantly bombarded with in the world. Jesus is the truth that holds us and sustains us, the one constant in a world of inconsistencies. See, the, rea the reality is, because Jesus is truth, he is also trustworthy and faithful. A hope that we can depend on, a certainty that will never fail us, despite what the world may throw at us. Truth not only finds its source in Christ, but it's also manifested in his faithfulness to keep his word, to keep his promises to us. That's why Christ is superior, because he is the only one that can truly keep his word and has the power to fulfill his word. So when he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again, and I will take you to myself, and that's that where I may you will also be. You know that what he says is true. That promise will come true. When Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even, even to the end of the age, it is assurance that despite the hardships we face, the trials we face, the persecutions we face, the sickness, the death, despite the corruption of this world, though others may abandon us or leave us, he who is faithful and true will never forsake us promise that the apostle Paul claims in Romans 8 where he says for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that promise stands on the foundation that it, it that it is in Christ Jesus our Lord who is faithful and true this is what John is getting at Jesus is superior because he is truth, trustworthy, and the standard of what is true. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is truth. John goes on to say in verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is speaking on Christ's authority. The reason why Christ is superior is because Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2 chapter, or Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 to 11 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father, out of his love for the Son, bestows the name, the title that is above every other name and every other title unto his Son, which is Lord the same name that the Jews in the Old Testament used in reverence of God. Adonai, capital L-O-R-D, is bestowed on his son, Jesus Christ, to denote his authority, his power, his control over all things. John goes from talking about Christ's origin, his preeminence, to his character, his truthfulness, and now his position over all creation as Lord. You can't get more superior than that. Jesus is above all earthly authority, all governments, all parties, all religious systems, every president, every prime minister, every policy, every mandate. Jesus is Lord over all, the only one deserving of unwavering allegiance and compliance to. It is why the disciples were so willing to lay down their lives for the gospel, why they endured hardships and persecutions and imprisonment and sword, why they were willing to proclaim a religion uh, to, to proclaim this faith, this gospel to a government, to a religious system that wanted them dead. That's why they were willing to say, we must obey God rather than men. Because they knew they answered to a higher king, the greatest authority, the superior master, and guess what, church? We do too. Our allegiance is not to this world or any government of this world or any king of this world. Our allegiance is Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible is very clear as to why. Because our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables himself it enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our allegiance is to Lord Jesus Christ, who has the power to subject everything. Meaning, the word there literally means to subdue, to place under, to make submit all things to his authority. All governments, all opposing truths, all those in power, at the end of the day, they will bend a knee and their lips will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the result, by the way, of this month's election. Regardless of whoever wins, Jesus is still king. Jesus is still Lord. And at the end of the day, whoever wins will still bow a knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. This is what the Apostle John was getting at in our passage. And interestingly enough, he even sees the culmination of all this, the 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 a great revelation of this towards the end of his life. Revelation 19. Listen to this. Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. And listen, if this doesn't get you excited and if this doesn't get your blood going, I don't know what will. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges, judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe, on his thigh. He is, has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who our king is. That is why Christ is superior. That is why Christ is over Caesar. Why we must obey God rather than men. Because at the end of the day, that is what we will have to answer to if we do not swear allegiance to him today. John even ends this chapter with the same warning. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The original Greek, therefore, not obey is apatheo, meaning to rebel against, to refuse conformity. John is saying if we refuse to submit to Christ, if we rebel against his, his authority, then the wrath of God, the same wrath that is held over us because we are depraved sinners, totally deserving of his wrath, which is hell, eternal punishment, that remains over us if we do not yield ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ today. But the hope that John gives to those who believe it points to another reason why Christ is superior to all other teachers, other religious systems, other worldviews. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is John's point throughout everything that we've read so far in his gospel. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Remember what John says in the very in the first chapter. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The source of life, the way to eternal life, the way to a fulfilling and satisfied life in this world and in the next, despite the hardships that we might face, despite the, the sin in our lives, Jesus is life. And this life that Jesus offers isn't a future hope. It is a present-day reality. That's why John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not will have eternal life, has eternal life. It is a life that we who believe in Christ have today. It is a life that assures the Apostle Paul while in prison to, to live in Christ is Christ and to die is gain. It is the assurance that comforts every believer who has laid down their life for the gospel that, that though this life may be filled with tribulations and hardships and persecution and even death itself, that the life will, that we will experience in Christ and the life to come will be full of joy, free from sadness and pain and tears, free from depression or fears. And all of that is in Jesus Christ. That is our life. Why is this Christ superior? Because no other faith, no other religious teacher can offer this. 
all other religions, name it. It says you need to work for your salvation. You need to work to have a good life so that God can bless you, so that God can grant you passage into eternity, into heaven. Only this faith, only the words of Christ says that he has done the work. He has done the job so that his righteousness would be our righteousness. If you have yet to believe in that, in Christ, it is a life that you can have this day too. If only you have believed, Lord. If only if you have faith and believed. The point of the opening three chapters of John is to illustrate how Christ came to give us this life because we could not, we could not do anything on our own to acquire it, to save ourselves. And again, as we've talked about, we instead of loving the light, we love the darkness instead. That was our choice. We, in our natural state, would never pursue the light of Christ. Yet what we see and what we have read and studied in these first opening chapters of John is that in order to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. We must be born again, similar to how we could do nothing to be born in our, physically. We can do nothing to be born again spiritually. That's the message. It's all by faith. It's all by the work of a sovereign God regenerating our hearts, replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh so that we can choose him, so that we can put our faith in him, so that we can exercise belief in him. An invitation remains as, as, as John concludes. As he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe, whoever refuses, the wrath of God remains on him. So the invitation is clear as we've been reading, as we've been studying. The invitation, you... Whether you are an unbeliever or whether you are a, a long-time believer, the invitation is to truly make Christ Lord over your life. To truly make Christ Lord over your life. To recognize him as the superior, to be the greater truth, to be the Lord of every aspect, of every decision, every action, every word that you speak forth, everything in your life. Make Christ Lord. Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the invitation. So church, as we close this evening, Ask yourself, is Christ truly Lord over your life? What part of your life have you, have you yet to yield over to his authority? What part of your, your life have you, have, have you kept for yourself? 
Christ truly Lord over your life? And if he is not, I ask you to make him Lord this evening. What that entails is recognizing whatever sin you have in your life and repenting of it. What that entails is if you, if you have been disobedient, repenting of it and coming to Christ in faith, making him Lord over your life. I ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening recognizing, O oh Lord, wherever we have fallen short, wherever we have failed you, wherever we have failed to recognize that you are, Lord, superior, greater than everything that we could ever experience, everything, any other teacher, any other philosophy or truth in this life. We recognize, oh God, where we have fallen to be, where we have fallen in attempts to be Lord over our own lives. And I pray, oh God, in this time of conviction, in this sacred time of confession, that you would move amongst your people and convict the hearts, oh Lord, that has yet to fully yield themselves to you, has yet to fully bend the knee to you as king over all. Oh God, I pray. Everyone in this room would leave this place with you on the throne of their hearts. With you as king over their lives. So that God, whatever hardships we might come across, whatever the world throws at us, whatever trial, whatever persecution, whatever pain or fear, all of it would be subjected to the authority of Jesus Christ. All of it would be subjected to the life that has been given to us, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh God, that our allegiance would truly be to you and no one else. That we would be faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. us, oh Lord, because you know how prone our hearts are to wander. You know how quickly we are to, to make idols of things in our lives. You know how quickly we are to, to crown other things and other people as king over our lives. And I pray in the sacred moment, oh Lord, that you would break those, those other thrones, oh Lord. That you would break those other idols, those other gods in our lives this evening. 
so that you could truly be set up as king and lord over everything. Help us, oh God. Spirit, would you move among your children and bring true and lasting change and be glorified, O King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives this evening. In your most precious name, we pray these things, our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.